You cannot lose games in the NFL and still win. One day I understand. One day, go see the baby be born and come back. You're a major league baseball player. Did I not tell you? Yes, you did. Oh, see, don't answer. I mean, this are, these are all rhetorical questions because you know I told you and you know I'm not. Analytics don't work at all. It's just a crap to some people who were really smart made up to try to get in the game because they had no talent. This kid is a gamer. He's a follower. He's a playmaker and a shot In case you didn't know, I got T-Bow. He shattered the mold. And all he does is win. All, all he does is win. Hello and welcome to Hot Takedown 538, a sports podcast. I'm Chad Matlin, an editor at 538. With me in the studio, it's the whole gang. It's Neil Statman Payne. Hi, Neil. Hey, Chad. Great to see you. How are you feeling today? I'm here. Yeah? Yeah, feeling good. Subway series. Ready to Very talk. Very exciting. Ugh. Yeah. I was, uh, the Subway series, I was at Just Salad today, having my salad chopped, and I got heckled by a Yankee fan who was in between chops of my salad. He, he let me hear it about the Mets, so... Feeling, feeling that Subway Series spirit right now. You can't escape, Neil. Also, in the studio, it's ESPNW columnist, author of What Made Maddie Run, and Hot Takedown's foreign Canadian correspondent, Kate Fagan. Hi, Chad. Kate, you're back from Canada. I'm back. How was it up there? It was great. Yeah? We were doing a piece with Royce White. Oh, cool. The uh, Iowa State player. Former Houston Nick's Rockets heart. draft pick. Yeah, yeah Iowa State. That we we should talk about on the show once like the piece is done and comes out. What's he up to now? Are you allowed to say he's playing in the Canadian Basketball oh, cool. League for London, Ontario? Also, there's a Canadian Basketball League. Yeah. <laughs> Side note: Is there one? And his team won the championship, and he was MVP. So Whoa. tune in. Still, aside from John Wall, the most impressive college basketball player I've ever seen in person was See? Royce White. Okay, so honestly, he said in this interview that he's a top five player in the world. I- Kate, that's I, a little no, much. No, no, but, I mean, that's obviously <laughs> when I the, saw when I saw him play for Iowa State. I saw him be a point forward, which is what yes. I think they called him at the time. And I saw him bring the ball up. Where was I? I think I was in Kansas State at their arena. And yeah. I saw him bring the ball up, and he moved like a point guard. Yep. And but it was like one of those things where you're looking at something and you've seen something happen over you know enough times in your life that you know what it's supposed to look like, and you can't quite place your finger on what's happening that's different from what's supposed to be happening at that moment. Yeah. And it took me a full like three up and uh, uh, up and downs of the court to realize, wait, that guy is six foot nine or ten or whatever it is. Yeah. And he's carrying the ball like he's six two, and he's moving and distributing like he's six two, and it was really is a remarkable. And that game, we don't have to talk about this anymore, but that game. Uh, in Manhattan was likely one he drove to instead of flying to. Right, because he had that anxiety condition. Yeah, There's which he says is not the reason why he's not in the NBA, but you'll have to tune in for more. All right. He's 60. That's a good tease. Nicely done. <laughs> yep. uh, all right. On today's show, we are going to talk a little bit about hotness, that heat, really about whether a player can get hot. We'll have our colleague Rob Arthur on to talk about his new research into what he thinks is proof that pitchers can get hot, that they have stretches of pitches in which they're pitching better than than they would otherwise, and they can also get cold just the same, and what implications that might have for baseball, and then also for understanding of momentum and clutchness and, and all the rest inside of sports. And then we'll have our significant digit, of course, as well. Neil, I think, has some uh, some thoughts on baseball taking too long. That's that, correct. Okay. And, and that's the show, except first, we're going to talk about Ezekiel Elliott a little bit. Ezekiel Elliott, the phenom for the for the cowboys on on the field at least the last year rookie running back who was i think the best running back in the league by sort of universal 
agreement was suspended for six games by the NFL after an alleged domestic violence incidents. Uh, these were incidents that this is an extrajudicial suspension. There has been no action within a court of law towards Elliott. Um, but since the Ray Rice incident, what was that? Two or three years ago now, three. Um, uh, the NFL has uh, changed its behavioral uh, personal conduct policy and is now particularly trying to to make very clear that they don't allow even alleged incidents of domestic violence within their league. This has prompted the usual back and forth about many things about uh, whether the NFL has a domestic violence problem, whether they should be going out beyond what the law does. And they're not the only league, of course, that, that does this. Um, but whether that's fair to the players uh, that the, the commissioner does this, whether the commissioner should be doing this right. on his own as well. And so we're back in this space where lines are being drawn. Neil did a little research the number of games that players are being suspended has gone up since Ray Rice, as the commissioner said it would for the domestic final, violence. final, even after the appeal? Yeah. Like, so after adjusted, it, uh, it was an average in the pre-Ray Rice era of 1.6 uh, games for any incident of violence against women. And since then, the average is 4.2 games for suspensions, which it starts at six, which was like the big kind of thing after Ray Rice. And then, you know, they find ways to adjust it down. Yeah. But in the case of Ezekiel, they didn't. Yeah, so there's some numbersy stuff to this story, but also it's not a number story. I think yeah. pretty clearly uh, there's a conversation about whether or not suspending players for more games leads to less reporting because then uh, if your own personal livelihood as a woman is dependent upon your partners and he's suspended without pay, that affects your own life, etc. Kate, I'm curious, you know, you are on TV more than Neil and I talking about this sort of thing yeah. and yeah. wondering you know, whether this story feels like something worth talking about within the the, the larger scheme of things beyond the football ramifications, yeah, which right. there are some on the field, obviously. Yeah. And certainly people want to talk about the fantasy implications and all that. And that's a separate thing. Won't someone please think of the fantasy? Implications? Somebody please think about the fantasy. Thank you. Matthew Barry is covering that for us. So we're good. But the larger conversation when Ray Rice happened three years ago, it seemed important and that the general sports public was somewhat malleable to like, oh, wow, what's going on? Oh, really? We didn't know. We didn't know that there were that many accusations in past years. Like, oh, we didn't know that this was a larger cultural issue. Now, I think we're past that point and we're to a place within sports where I think most consumers of the NFL have made up their minds about how they feel about the NFL's like shadow justice when it comes to this topic and made up their minds in general of how, about how they respond to this and made up their minds that in their mind, it's like a political issue and that they align themselves with like whatever, you know, Oh, that's the lefties who feel that way. And I don't know over the last year, cause I've gone, I've talked about Ezekiel Elliott on the radio show, Josh Brown before that, that I have ever talked about Ezekiel Elliott and someone said, Oh, I really listened and you changed my mind. It doesn't happen. And so I, I'm not saying there's no point to it at all. I just think for the most part, it's just talked about because you have to talk about it. You can't just talk about the fantasy because then you're callous. But nobody – like when we communicate, the goal, right, is to like change someone's mind or to impart new information. And when I talk about Ezekiel Elliott, I assume that I'm just like spitting out into nowhere. Well – 
as someone who does more than just sports in, in my professional life, it's pretty easy to draw a parallel between the larger national conversation and the partisan environment that we are looking at in the larger political, socio-political environment and what's happening within sports. And this is, you know, the whole thing about stick to the, the stick to sports movement, which is what often fans will say to uh, people like, our, like ourselves who talk about more than just sports whether it be online or, or wherever else, is that it doesn't hold up because sports is intertwined with the rest of the dialogue in the country. The way we talk about sports is intertwined with it. Yeah, and by sticking to sports, you have kind of implicitly made some kind of judgment about the incident that you're not talking about in and of itself. So like you said, it would be callous to only talk about the implications for the Dallas Cowboys and for the fantasy players that were thinking about drafting Ezekiel Elliott. And yet at the same time, if you do dive into the more, you know, the the actual political and, you know, social implications of not just him and his behavior, but also the NFL at large and just the problem of domestic violence in society, then you have a lot of backlash and you have people, you know, kind of yelling at you and telling you to stick to sports. So it does put people who cover sports in sort of a very difficult position uh, when when trying to talk about this kind of thing. Okay, let's leave it there because I don't think we want to go deeper into that and and risk for uh, reasons stated. Exactly. Um, We're going to stick to sports now (laughs) uh, and we'll get a quick word from one of our sponsors and then get right back to the conversation around momentum and hotness. This week's Hot Takedown is sponsored by ZipRecruiter. Are you hiring? Do you know where to post your job to find the best candidates? With ZipRecruiter, you can post your job to 100-plus job sites with just one click. Then, ZipRecruiter's powerful technology efficiently matches the right people to your job, better than anyone else. That's why ZipRecruiter is different. Unlike other job sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on candidates finding you. It finds them. In fact, over 80% of jobs posted on ZipRecruiter get a qualified candidate in just 24 hours. No juggling emails or calls to your office. Simply screen, rate, and manage candidates all in one place with ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use dashboard. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by businesses of all sizes to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. Right now, Hot Takedown listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. That's right, for free. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash takedown. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash takedown. One more time to try it for free right now. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash takedown. All right, now to our main segment where we're going to talk sort of big picture about whether or not there is such a thing as a player getting hot and there is such a thing as clutchness and and what it might mean if those things are all of a sudden real when statistics used to tell us that they probably weren't. Um, And to help us with that, uh, here is our colleague Rob Arthur from 538, uh, because Rob has been researching some of the stuff, especially around pitchers. Rob, welcome to the show. Hey. How are you? So, Rob, recently on 538.com, you wrote a piece that sort of investigated whether or not hot streaks are possible for pitchers. Uh, This is the kind of thing that... My understanding is past sabermetric research would have sort of laughed at that, of course, pitchers can't get hot because hotness and clutchness doesn't exist in sports at all. But in your piece, which is called Baseball's Hot Hand is Real, you argued that baseball's hot hand is real. So how do you figure that out? Well, uh, we had a couple of advantages compared to past sabermetric research. So a lot of the work that's been done before focused on things like ERA. And ERA is uh, not the best metric to evaluate pitchers with. 
And the, t- the kinds of approaches they used, they would, for example, look at a pitcher's last 10 starts and see if that predicted his 11th start. So if his last 10 starts were good, um, according to the idea of a hot hand, that would predict that his 11th start would be better than his seasonal average. And what people consistently found is that there was no effect of the, the last few starts performance on the next start's performance. Or if there was an effect, it was very small. What we did is instead is we focused on fastball velocity, and we used a different kind of model. And using that model, which is called the hidden Markov model, we were able to show that there is streakiness in fastball velocity. And the effects were pretty striking. We saw that pitchers' fastball velocity could go up on a, an average of about a mile per hour when they were hot and down by roughly the same amount when they were cold. And fastball velocity, of course, isn't performance itself, but it's one of the most crucial determinants of how well a pitcher is going to do. And if you translate that into runs allowed based on previous uh, sabermetric research, uh, you predict that the average pitcher, uh, their true talent level would kind of fluctuate by between uh, 0.5 runs allowed to one run allowed, depending on whether they were hot or cold. So it was a much bigger effect that we found with this new model and focusing on fastball velocity. So that's why we say that the hot hand is real. So, Rob, in the piece, you use the numbers 57 and 24, 57 being like the typical pitcher would go through 57 streaks during a season, and it would be about, on average, like every 24 pitches, there'd be a shift in in this velocity. So I guess my question, my question is, if they're that frequent, and we're talking about numerous streaks even within a game, how do you then capitalize on this information if you're a manager? Well, I'll answer that, but before I do, I want to say a couple of things. One is that it's every 24 fastballs, which is about half of all the pitches that uh, a major league baseball pitcher would throw. So it's really more like once every 50 pitches total. The second is that that's an average over all the pitchers. Some of the pitchers had really short streaks that were like 10 pitches, Others of them had really long streaks. It wasn't uncommon to see a streak that lasted um, two or three starts in a row, and that would certainly be actionable information. And oftentimes we found when there was a streak that long, uh, it was correlated with an injury. Either a pitcher was coming back from an injury or they were about to go on the disabled list with an injury. But even if the streaks were, let's say, once every 24 uh, fastballs, you'd still be able to make use of that in-game because it would be really important information, for example, to know when to pull a starter out of the game. So if you had a pitcher that started the game really hot, his fastball is going really well, he's striking everyone out, and then all of a sudden his velocity begins to dip and he gets cold um, at the end of the fourth inning, let's say, you might want to know about that and not send him out to face the third trip through the order. Rather, you might go to a reliever. Another area where it could be useful is with relievers. We excluded them from this study, but we have every reason to believe that they also get hot and cold. So if you're in a high leverage moment, maybe you want to select a reliever that's hot whose fastball velocity is unusually high and use him to kind of diffuse the the situation or get out of the jam. So there's a few ways that could be useful in addition to injury prediction. And I'm sure that in the long run, teams will be inventive and will come up with even additional stuff. Like, for example, maybe if it's a mechanical difference for a pitcher, they could show a pitcher when they're hot what their mechanics look like to try and get them to repeat those mechanics and thus uh, be hot more often and have a better fastball velocity. And just so we're clear, Rob, you looked at velocity, which doesn't necessarily mean good pitching, but you also saw 
an effect in which people were swinging and missing more often when pitchers were quote unquote hot. And so this isn't just about throwing fast, it's also about throwing well. Is that correct? That's exactly right. We found that pitchers were more likely to get swinging strikes. We found they were more likely to get called strikes, so we think they have better command when they're hot. And we even found that they were better able to limit batting average and extra base hits against them. So really it seemed like their performance pretty much across the board went up when they were hot, which is pretty remarkable. Now, Rob, you mentioned injury prediction. How much of just being cold is sort of, uh, you know, being on the verge of an injury versus some of the other stuff that you mentioned, like a mechanical difference? Or does it, you know, is it more often than not indicative of an injury when when a pitcher starts to kind of, you know, tail off in terms of their fastball velocity? Well, uh, I don't think we can say for certain how much of it is injuries, in part because we don't always know when there are injuries. Uh, a lot of times pitchers won't even tell their manager if they're suffering some discomfort in their elbow, for example, because they don't want to get taken out or they don't want to get put on the disabled list. So it could be mostly injuries. In fact, it could be uh, it could be mostly mechanical changes or just fatigue or uh, having gotten a good night's rest. Um, it's hard for us to say unless we had a better data set of how often pitchers really are injured. I do think that a lot of it, though, is injury because we found that for about half the disabled list trips that our pitchers went on, uh, in the two weeks prior, they were went on a big cold streak. So immediately prior to these, to these notable injuries, at least, it does look like their fastball velocity dropped in a way that the, the model was able to detect. Okay, Rob, I think we have to leave it there because uh, you're about to have a TV crew come uh, knock down your door to, to talk about uh, some other research you've talked about before on Hot Take Down, which is your juice ball research. You're in, you're in hot demand with all your sabermetric uh, inquiries. So uh, thanks for taking some time and talking to us about this very interesting finding. Hey, thank you. Okay, so that was Rob Arthur telling us about his finding about just pitchers and whether they can get hot or not. The evidence seems pretty clear that at least you oscillate in performance it's not just like you're throwing a 94 mile an hour fastball sometimes and a 92 mile an hour hour fastball sometimes it's that there are real streaks to this that there there are waves at crest and, and ebb and flow and sort of curious for your guys reactions to that finding because it seems to me to flout a lot of what sabermetrics were meant to do well i think that it's part of uh kind of this modern wave of sort of backtracking on some of the earlier claims of research that was done to try to debunk things like the hot hand. And now that, uh, like Rob mentioned, we have better data to be able to measure things in a more kind of fine, controlled manner, we're actually finding that some of these things that players have insisted were true the whole time uh, (laughs) ended up being true, uh, and and maybe we're getting a sense of the magnitude of them, uh, whereas in the past, you know, they're so small and and so uh, sort of, you know, difficult to measure that all of the other effects that were, uh, you know, kind of playing a role in a player's performance were masking the existence of, you know, this this hot hand or, or what have you. And maybe it's because it's being particularly applied to baseball and pitchers here, but I can't quite grasp yet how to truly use this information to affect the game. Mm-hmm. Because, one seems as if yes we can say like that's a thing that happens i have no clue why it happens or when it will stop happening really i mean unless you can say unless we can really dig in there years from now or along the way and say oh with cole hamill specifically because i know he's a guy that's in the in the particular article like he tends to be hot for 70 pitches 
and then cold for 70 pitches. But otherwise, it's like you kind of don't know when anyone's going to stop being hot or when they're going to leave a cold streak and get hot again. Well, they do make predictions as part of the research uh, about whether the next pitch will be, quote-unquote, hot or cold, and then kind of, you know, so at the slightest kind of change in in a player's, you know, string of fastball velocities or whatever, they can kind of detect in that moment, hey, it's he's flipped from being, you know, likely to be hot to being likely to be but cold. But I think Kate's, quite, Kate's point is like, okay, so let's say that happens when there's 75 pitches into a start. Mm-hmm. It's the top of the sixth or whatever. Are you really going to pull a pitcher because the inflection point had been reached? As a manager, is that something right, that you we're could, advocating? Even if you had like an iPad on your dugout wall and you're like, now let's just keep with Cole Hamels. Like now Cole Hamels has a... 55% chance that this inning he's going to go cold again. And the previous was like 49, right? So you're like, well, you could be hot. We're borderline here. Don't you then still drive yourself based on like the fact that you have a pitcher who's like pitched well? So like I can't see it really impacting a manager. I think you start warming up the bullpen, truth be told, at that point. I think just, that, just in case. Yeah. Like you're, it's like an insurance. It helps you. Prepare for eventuality. Right, and I don't know how quickly the, you know, if it can go from being, you know, 45 to 55. Uh, right. That seemed like a high jump, maybe. Well, I don't know. I mean, I would, if I were a manager, I'd be actually pretty happy if it, if the jumps were sort of, you know, maybe not between pitches, but over the span of like a few pitches in an inning. If you saw that kind of change, mm-hmm. it would give you enough time to call the bullpen and actually get somebody warming up. Uh, it may be the fact that it goes from being, you know, like 80% hot to, 80% cold over like two pitches and then you're just like oh crap I and, don't have time and that's to where, warm anyone up that's where this research very it differs from a basketball hot hand for example which right. like there has been kind of, right? yes which yeah. there has been some evidence for and then you pass the guy the ball and then you know you build the game plan around it in yeah. baseball it's such that because things are so routinized and and there's such a form and what happens when in, in regards to who starts a playoff which is the pitcher a playoff not a playoff Got game it. I was uh, confused for a second. <laughs> or or who's batting when but i i do want to chad the- chad I, I gotta say, those are the very things that allow you to actually research this better in baseball mm. than you can in other sports because there's fewer stuff messing up your your natural experiment. Yeah, that's interesting. So I do think though that if we have evidence in basketball of a hot hand or building evidence, right, Neil? Is that fair to say that the, that the current thinking is there is a uh, potential hot hand effect? Yeah, that they found using things like uh, sport view, you know, camera tracking, which always the hang up in the past was, uh, especially when it came to using in-game data, was uh, that you can't measure the selection bias of, of a player's shot. So, you know, if a player thinks that they're hot, they're going to be taking more difficult shots and it will make them look like they're actually not, uh, that there's no such thing as a hot hand because it's sort of this self-reinforcing uh, cycle. And on top of that, the fact that defenses uh you know will react to somebody who is perceived to be hot and play them tougher also making them look less likely to have a hot hand uh and so there were things working against that luckily with the position of every player known by the camera tracking technology we can adjust for those two things that have always been sort of the bugaboo of doing this research on actual in-game shots. Uh, And after doing that, the researchers from the Sloan Conference a couple of years ago actually found that there was maybe not a hot hand, maybe call it a lukewarm hand. (laughs) But I think within saying in basketball like that there's a hot hand, at least when I hear that phrase, 
I think that what's also trying to be implied is that someone makes their second shot because they made their first shot. Then they make their third shot because they made their second shot. And there's a momentum inherent in like so-and-so is hot and they're building off of how well they're playing as opposed to what the baseball research is saying is that there are just certain times where your mechanics are better or your focus is better for what we don't know why and that you just shoot better when it comes to a basketball player as opposed to in momentum being inherent in building a streak. That's interesting. Yeah. I mean, uh, definitely the way that people have talked about it in terms of the research has been in the sense of, you know, trying to measure, you know, what you've done in the past, but not necessarily saying that uh, the there's a building effect where making one makes you more likely to make the next one as much as saying you've, you've revealed yourself to be hot by making a series of shots in a row. So, and those two are kind of very different things, I think. So I want to broaden out just a little bit and finish the question I was asking before. Oh, we just jumped all over we that and took it a different way. Well, you may have picked up on my passive But Neil said bugaboo. So I think it worked out well for everybody because <laughs> that's the first time I've ever heard him say that word. You I really the, don't know where that came from. You want the remix? Of just Neil saying auto tune saying bugaboo over and over again. I just, of course, saying Beyonce in my head after Uh, that happened. Absolutely. So, my question is if we have some evidence of momentum and heat in baseball for pitchers. But that's what I'm asking. Is it momentum? Okay, so let's table that for just one second. If we have some evidence of streaks that are real and can affect performance in baseball, and we have some evidence of that in basketball that the hot hand is or the lukewarm hand at least is real in a place like football based on the research that we read in advance of the show it seemed like there was a much more confusion about whether there is such a thing as momentum in football let's say even if you tried to isolate it for one position or something like that uh, yeah i mean if you're talking about like the momentum that i bet there were people that said the patriots just you know built this uncontrollable momentum uh, at mm-hmm. the end of the super bowl momentum for a team well right is so i i want to i want to i want to just integrate that which yeah. is we're at a player level i'm not sure it's clear that a quarterback can can get hot. Well, they talk about quarterbacks being in rhythm. That's okay. kind of the thing that I would think of it right. applying so to. So to finally finish this question that I've, oh, that I've been oh, leading oh, up okay. to for five minutes, which is if you have the evidence that in baseball streaks of performance are possible and in basketball, and that makes me wonder whether it's going to be the case in almost any sport that a player can get hot and truly hot, you know, above average hot. And that to me shakes my understanding of what Sabermetrics was telling us, which is that randomness and, and whatever else means that you can pluck a 20 pitch or a 20 throw sample out and it might look like someone was hot in that, but that doesn't mean that there's actual performance change going on. Well, there was a really interesting thing. If you want to go down the rabbit hole of statistical paradoxes and things uh, like the Monty Hall problem and all kinds of stuff like that is these two researchers found that the assumption that was baked into a lot of these early hot hand um, research studies that your your next shot is an independent shot of the previous ones and that basically a, a coin flip has a 50% probability of being heads and being tails. They found that when you do this thing like you're talking about where you do a lot of samples of shots or coin flips or whatever it is, and then you go after the fact and you look at all of the strings of, of shots and then you try to figure out, well, 
uh, what percentage of the time after I flipped a heads or after I made a shot was the next shot a, also a head or uh, was the next flip also a head, that kind of thing, uh, to mix my, my coin flipping and shooting metaphors. Uh, they found that your, your actual odds uh, uh, when doing that of getting two straight heads or the head after a head being uh, – the flip after a head being a head was 40 percent, not 50 percent. Because of the way that we uh, the the researchers would treat streaks and doing a little bit of unweighted averaging and and there's a lot of ways in which you can kind of dive into the the ways in which this makes sense and seemingly on its face it makes no sense but that that fundamental mistake that was made by the previous researchers is something that has sort of been present in a lot of this hot hand research that isn't just a, a, a matter of not being able to accurately measure things that are happening happening on the court, but a st- something statistical that was baked into uh, as an assumption into these these models that have existed since people started studying it, which I think is fascinating. And it's still, again, like if you want to try to wrap your mind around the ways in which uh, that is actually true, you can actually kind of program it into R or something like that and have it spit out that 40% number to you, and you still will not believe it until you've gone through all the combinations. Okay, just, just to make sure I understand. Are you saying that, let's just take basketball, a shot after someone makes a shot only has a 40% chance of making that next shot? Yes, if if there's sort of like, you know, it's kind of a toss-up between the two. So if if it's uh, a 50-50 as to whether you make or miss a shot, because... So they're saying it's actually lower there's to a bias succeed to after make you've it made lo- a shot. Right. There's a bias to make it look like there's not a hot hand because of the way in which that particular uh, exercise discards certain strings because there's no way if the sh- if the make comes at the end of, for instance, a string of four consecutive shots that you take. Uh, you're going to throw that out because you don't know what the next shot was. But as a consequence of doing that, you've actually discarded uh, a, a string that you know makes the rest of your sample be biased toward you missing more shots on, on the a next more, shot on a more than just like it. fan, like athlete level. Yeah. When Rob was saying in our conversation with him, like if we can pinpoint a hot streak for a pitcher. And then we can therefore show the video back to him and say, this is when you were hot. Look at your mechanics. I can't imagine that ever really working because I feel like a professional at that highest level understand the understands the mechanics that are supposed to be taking place. And when you are in a hot streak, whether as a shooter or as a pitcher, my gut belief of it is that. Things are just coming together in a way that you can't pinpoint. If I then go and look and someone's like, well, look, your right foot's an inch in front of your left, I don't feel like I can recreate what it feels like to hit five threes in a row. Right. To me, all this this talk about heat and momentum brings in – mental the mental aspect of the game even more than it did before when we were just dealing with sort of like cold cool randomness and 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 statistics in that there's a self-consciousness that i would assume an athlete could perhaps go through if they have to constantly be thinking about you know whether or not they're in their hot mechanics quote unquote right and part of the point of of doing of, of being an athlete and doing 
the especially in baseball, they wind up over and over again in the same repeatable fashion is to make it background noise. I mean, obviously, and one of the and- reason pitchers have been going away from the windup and just pitching st- out of the stretch, even with nobody on base, is one of the big reasons is to simplify their mechanics. Because if you the more moving parts you have, the more chances there are for things to get out of whack and you go cold or whatever. Right, and so you know, obviously, there's hitting coaches and pitching coaches that study uh, swings and and uh, and and windups and, and things like that and try and fix a hitch in somebody's swing or something like that. I, I do think, though, that this is bringing me back into a space that, Kate, you've long been advocating as a former player, which is, like, things can feel differently on the court, on in your case, on certain days than they do on other days. And it's an ineffable thing, almost. And, right. you know, that might mean that you're, the way you took that jumper looks different and, and there might be a hitch. But that, ultimately, there is this interplay between the mind and the body that... For a while, I feel like sabermetrics tried to obscure or, or ignore that that the mind really could have an impact on performance because these were professionals who did this over and over. And so someone couldn't choke or be really good in a, in a high-impact moment because it's a baseball player. And they stand at the, at the plate and they make the swing and the pitcher tries to make the pitch. And like whatever's going to happen is going to happen. It's like rolling a, a, a dice and certain probabilities coming out. What we're talking about now is the idea that there can be – an interplay, whether it be random within myself or not, of this kind of hot cold. And what was interesting in Rob's article is that different pitchers had different uh, ranges of yeah. their heat, of, of how fast their fastball was when they were hot uh, yeah. versus when they were cold. Some pitchers ranged, I think, three or four miles per hour, and some were really Poor tight. Taiwan uh, Walker was <laughs> like right. lost like five miles yeah. an hour off his and fastball. And so, you know, that to me really does suggest a mental aspect, which is like when I'm down. I am down, right? Like, I just, like, am, am just not the same. Whereas someone who we would think is really dependable, um, like, there aren't really good starts and really bad starts. They're just always that, that same range. There, perhaps their mental makeup is different. Right. And one last thing on this mini rant. That makes me think about, Kate, your book a lot, which is about mental health, obviously, in a much different avenue. But I do think that we've ignored mental health within athletics for a very long time. And, you know, some of these interplays between mental health and, and physical performance could help explain yeah. some of this. And I stuff. think, Chad, I, I think my initial instinct when you talk about, like, look at pitchers and when you talk about pitcher A isn't as streaky. Pitcher A doesn't have a ton of variation between fast fastball, like, really cooking fastball and and cold fastball and the change between those takes longer versus pitcher B who maybe has like really high change between their fastball being fast and their fastball being slow and it happens a ton and they bounce back and forth between being streaky what we would traditionally say is streaky I think my gut reaction is that the player who is streakier is probably more volatile but both like with their mental makeup and emotionally and everything when the reality is they might just be more self-aware and actually right. just might be processing the the moment the stadium and everything even more than other people which causes some fluctuations away from mechanics in different ways and maybe yeah like to to that point maybe they're also like hypersensitive about like slight changes uh, and are constantly kind of making corrections and that might allow them to steer out of cold streaks faster but also steer themselves out of hot streaks faster also, whereas, the, you know, a player that made no modifications would just kind of rise and fall as the, the chips fall. Okay. I think we should end it there. We've been talking for a long time. I feel like in some ways this is just 
not quite the beginning, but, a, yeah. but we haven't finished the conversation around this question of of hotness and momentum and clutchness. I mean, it and is... how understanding the mental makeup of each individual athlete could give you insight into how they steer in and out of these and how to get them better into those places. And, and that's all stuff we don't know. And yet. even the most self-aware person, let's say R.A. Dickey or something, who's, who's sort of renowned for being a pitcher who could you know, write a great book about pitching and what it was like to, to be stuck in the minor leagues and whatever else. I don't think even he or whoever else could articulate for you what it is about the, what happens in the hot in the hot streak. I mean, the, in the zone was the thing in the '90s with yeah. Reggie Miller, and and that was as close as I feel like we've come yeah. to an articulation. I mean, there's still. a reason je ne sais quoi is like a phrase, right? <laughs> it's because you, there's certain things that you just don't understand how to define. I think this right now this seems like one of those things as an athlete. Yeah, and uh, I should say that even after the research that Rob did, and and also the people at the Sloan Conference a few years ago, and some others. Uh, this is still a matter of intense debate among statisticians and and psychologists in all kinds of different fields of, you know, it, it is far from settled as to whether or not the hot hand does or does not exist and to what degree it exists. So uh, it's, it's still a lot of arguments to be had on the topic. Great. Okay, let's leave it there and move on to our significant digit when a telling number from the world of sports is delivered to us today, the Courier... Got his messenger bag, a little sweat stain, you know, from riding the bike so hard up here. Wearing the Mets hat, no helmet. Ah, what? I don't believe in. About I don't believe in cranial safety. Nor uh, I'm gonna actually leave off. I'm not going to finish that sentence. Um, <laughs> Neil, you can tell me off air. Yeah, what do you have for us? So uh, this week's significant digit comes actually from a story that was written by our colleague Sam Miller at ESPN.com, and the significant digit is five minutes. That is the increase uh, in the average length of a baseball game this year as opposed to last year. The, in 2017 so far, the average nine-inning contest is now three hours and five minutes long, which is the longest average in the history of baseball. Neil, I thought they were supposed to get shorter. I things that have was, happened that was to make it shorter. Rob Manfred, uh, yeah, did a lot of things that supposedly would make the game shorter. But are, well, have those things made it longer or yeah, they have, just happen to be longer Have now? we looked into like what is causing the extra time? Yeah, so Sam actually broke down a lot of things and found that it's pretty complicated to figure out what adds those extra seconds to the game. For instance, there are more plate appearances in a game because people are focusing on on-base percentage more, and so more things other than outs are happening, like walks and, and so on and so forth. There are also more pitches being thrown because batters are being more uh, disciplined. More runners are being on base as a consequence of all these things, and, and uh, plate appearances mm-hmm. with runners on base take more time. Mm-hmm. Obviously, there are more pitching changes. Those are the huge difference, even as opposed to a couple years ago, there's about uh, there's 4.1 pitching changes per game as opposed to 3.97 two years ago when it was tracked in, in 2015. Defenses are taking time to get set up because of the defensive shift also. And then uh, there's this statistic that he points out that is actually kind of ambiguous as to whether or not it's contributing or not. There's this thing called pace, which measures the time taken between pitches uh, for pitchers based on the time stamp of each pitch thrown in a game. You know, you have the data set printed out after the game. And depending on which source you look at, that's either ballooned from 22.8 seconds in 2015 to 24.3 seconds on average between uh, Mm. pitches in 2017. Or, if you ask Baseball Prospectus, it's actually gone down slightly, and it depends on what 
uh, pitches they throw out in terms of the outcome of the previous pitch. So uh, sometimes they throw out wh- uh, if if something takes more than fifty seconds between pitches, they'll toss it out because they assume something happened that was abnormal between the pitches. Uh, another source uses sixty seconds as its cutoff. And there's also do you include ones that include pickoff attempts because that takes time in between pitches. And sometimes you include that, and sometimes you don't. Foul balls. Uh, if you include foul balls, it ratchets up the amount of time between pitches because uh, batters you know kind of saunter around they do things uh in between foul balls so it's kind of a complicated question of measuring exactly you know itemizing where those extra seconds come from but when you add all of those up you do get to that five minute number uh and and it's going in the opposite direction of what the commissioner uh intended when he came in a couple of years ago limit the number of relief pitchers per inning it's gonna happen guys I'm excited about it. I think the game should just be seven innings. Ooh. <laughs> I mean, the pitchers don't go past six, so they sort of that is an adaptation to modern games. games. I mean, that's when I leave most games that I go to. So. <laughs> All right. Let's leave it there for now. Kate, wonderful to have you back in the studio. It's good to be here, Chad. Neil Payne, thanks for biking all the way up here. Yeah, thanks, Chad. Our podcast producer is Katie Ferguson today. She's all alone in that studio holding down the studio. Thank you, Katie, for soldiering through without our usual help from Tony Chow. Alice Wilder is our intern. You can email us at podcast at 538.com. We would love to hear what you think. Find us on your favorite podcasting app. We're also on iTunes as well. Subscribe at iTunes.com slash 538. While you're there, be sure to review and or rate the show. It helps others discover the program. Our theme song is by Mystery Mansion. I'm Chadwick Matlin. Talk to you next time.